Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Today, we continue talking about a favorite topic within our society. Something that we probably love to gather friends and family around and invite them over to discuss the wrath of God. Favorite topic, isn't it? Something that you invite people over for dinner. Hey, come on over to dinner. Let's talk about the wrath of God. Probably they would say, I'm busy that night. I don't know if I want to discuss that. Well, no, we're going to start the fire pit up tonight, and we're going to talk about the wrath of God. Enjoy the fire by yourself. Most people aren't going to come and gather around this topic of the wrath of God. Now, next week, we'll turn the corner, and we're going to be talking about the good news of this great letter. Can I get an amen? That means we're finishing up on the wrath of God for now, at least, because we do have to touch back into it as we go throughout the letter, but the heaviness of it is ending today. My prayer is this. My prayer is as we walk through this great letter, the letter of Romans, as I've called the greatest letter of good news, my prayer is that it ignites our heart and motivates us towards evangelism. Ignites our hearts and motivates us to go and tell other people. Like, I've got a friend who doesn't know Jesus, or I have a coworker who doesn't know Jesus, or, or I have a son or a daughter or a mom or dad who doesn't know Jesus. And as we read through Romans, and as we study Romans, as we live in Romans, it should start to change our heart and our mind where we go, i got to go tell somebody about this. So if you're in this place today and you're a Christian or you're online and you're a believer in Jesus, you should be motivated. You say, I'm not there yet. I'm still investigating. Well, you're here at a good time to hear about the wrath of God, to understand the true, complete picture of God and his kingdom and what his expectation is for those who will be in heaven. One of the things I do on a weekly uh, Zoom visit now, since started back when the pandemic first started, is we have a weekly Zoom gathering with pastors. There's usually about 40 to 50 pastors on this Zoom gathering every Tuesday, and they bring a different speaker in and shares it with us for 15 or 20 minutes across Zoom. The speaker last week was talking about how their church has led many to still profess Jesus as Savior and be baptized, even during the pandemic. And it's interesting because this is a guy that I follow on Facebook and I'm friends with, and I keep seeing these videos of we baptize another person, we baptize another person, we baptize another person. And so the question that was asked is, how are you doing this? It's the church up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's about the same size church as we are. And they have baptized during the pandemic over the last 12 months over 50 people. 50 people have said, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, and I want to meet him in a watery grave of baptism. And they said, well, for one thing, first and foremost, we said that is one time to let go of the six-foot distance because someone's coming to Christ. I'm excited. We'll, we'll forgo it for that purpose. And then the other thing he answered on this, on this call or on this Zoom thing was, how are you doing this? You know what he said? He, he didn't say we put a bunch of billboards up. He didn't say we went and hung door flyers all over people's doors. He didn't say we had a big neon sign flashing. He said, people in my church just get it. They understand that their job, their role is to tell their friends about Jesus. And they're out talking to their friends. He said, most of the baptisms I haven't done. He said, most of them is a friend baptizing a friend who's baptizing a friend who's leading them to Christ. And he said, one lady in their church has led 20 people to Christ over the, the past year. One person. You know why? She gets it. 
She understands it. If we the church in America, if we the church in the world, if we the church right here at Centerpoint Christian Church really get this, we won't have enough room to seat everybody. We would, the, the church would be, would be busting out its sides because people would be going to their friends and their family members and neighbors and they'd say, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to have a conversation about Jesus. And we'd blow up the excuses going, well, I'm not really sure how. I'm scared. I'm not sure what to say. We would trust the Spirit so much and we'd say, I mean, I've been studying the Word of God. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to trust Jesus. He's going to lead the way. And you'll be calling or emailing saying, Brian, is the baptistry warm? Is the baptistry warm? I've led a friend of Christ. I led another friend of Christ. I need to baptize them. Let me give you a warning. We need about six hours. It's cold most of the time. Six hours. It's warm. You, you call and you say, I, I've been talking to a friend. They're ready to come to Christ. I, they, they're making that commitment. Why wait? Follow what Nicodemus did. He saw that there was water. He said, I'm going to go get baptized. I'm going to do that now. On my wall in my office, if you go in there right now on the whiteboard I have in my office, I put a statement up several months ago. It says, my job isn't over until everyone knows Jesus. And you may say, well, yeah, you're a preacher. Do you know what? That's your job, too. That's our job as a church. Our job is to help everybody to know Jesus. We say we want to help them come to find and follow Jesus Christ. I pray Romans is a motivator. I pray it just penetrates your heart and your mind. You're like, I just don't want to know Romans. I don't want to just know about it. I don't want to know it theologically. I don't want to know it doctrinally. I want it to penetrate my heart so much that I'll go out and I'll live it. And not only as it changes my mind and heart, I'm going to trust it's going to change somebody else's so we will do our job while we're here on this planet. You know, we will never appreciate this gospel, the good news, though, until we fully understand the bad news. And that's why we've been taking our time to walk through Paul's teaching here in Romans about the wrath of God. The Bible says, for God so what? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. What did he give? He gave his son. That's Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not what? will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, he gave his son Jesus on the cross so that those who believe in him would not perish. We talked about this last week. Here's God balancing love and wrath in the same verse. Why? That's God's character. He loves us deeply, but he doesn't want to have to, to show his wrath, and so he provides a way that says, you don't have to experience God's wrath because of the cross. If you don't know Jesus, I pray you get that. Because what I'm going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the wrath, but you don't have to receive or face the wrath if you know Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus, if Jesus is your Savior. The first three chapters of this great letter, Paul is making the case that everyone is under God's wrath. Everyone. He breaks the humanity into four groups, the depraved Gentile society. That's those people who are outside the church. The people who say, I don't really need God. I don't really care about God. It doesn't really affect my life, and so there's no interest. He then goes on and talks about the moralist, the person who says, well, I'm good. Matter of fact, I'm so good, look at me compared to them. And because I got my life together and I got it all figured out, I'm sure God's going to see that, and God's going to show favor upon me. And he goes on to the third group of people we talked about last week, the Jewish person or the self-confident Jewish person, which we said that's the religionist, the person who has the set of rules. 
And it may be the Jewish person, but it may be the person who grew up in a strict Baptist church or a strict Methodist church or grew up in a strict Christian church, and you have all the rules, and you check them all off, and you're doing good, and you and God, hey, you're, you're, you're A-OK. Today we wrap up, as if Paul hasn't already done this, talks to the entire human race. See, when he covers the, the Gentiles, and he covers the moralists, and he covers the religionists, he's already been talking to the human race. But now, just to make sure I get everybody, let me put everybody kind of underneath the same umbrella, and let's just write a little bit more. He wants to talk about all humanity. Here's main, Paul's main point. We have two ways to live. And we have a choice of how we're going to live. We can either live under grace or we can live under law. And Paul says, that's your choice. It's your choice. You can choose the grace path or you can choose the law path. And as you raise kids, and I'm at the stage right now with our kids being 18, 20, and 21, and it started a few years ago, we started having more and more conversations where we'd have conversations around Here's some options, and you make a choice. And when you make a choice, then you have to live with a choice, and the consequences are yours, good consequences or bad consequences. Now, mom and dad will still love you no matter what choice you make. We still love you, even if you make choices. Maybe they're not good ones. That's what Paul's laying out here. Paul's like, listen, you have a choice. You can either choose grace or you can choose law. I love you. God still loves you, but you have a choice which way to go. And there's consequences. So which one do you want? And Paul's trying to emphatically guide us towards, please choose grace. Please choose grace. The smart decision would be choose grace. We've all done it with our kids. You know there's some choices here you can make. Please go this direction, but if you go that direction, you're a knucklehead. That's what Paul's thinking. Paul's like, you can go this direction. Please choose grace. Romans 3, 9 is where we pick up today. Paul says, what then? Are the Jews any better off? Now, now, what is this about? He's been talking about the religionist. And he's saying, are they better off because of the way they live or because of the things they do? Some, some may think, you go back to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3, and it says that Jews had an advantage. I don't think that's what the text is actually saying. Here's what Paul's trying to say. The Jews had the privilege, not only having God's law written on their heart, but they also had God's law written in their scriptures, the Torah. In Romans 2.15, though, it tells us that God's law is written on everyone's heart. God's law is written on your heart sitting in this room, or it's written on your heart uh, if you're watching on Facebook today and participating. Uh, it's written on the, on, on the heart of the person you go to work with. It's written on, a, on your mom and dad's heart. It's written on your heart. And everybody, even though, even though our culture affects this, our culture affects our thinking, even though our culture affects it, it's not erased it. All of us inside still have a sense of, well, this is wrong or this is right. This is good. This is bad. Um, I should do this or I shouldn't do that. We, we all have that <laughs> in a culture that we live in today has not erased that. But some thought that the Jews were more privileged because they had God's written law in their hand and that somehow God would be partial to them by not judging them because they had God's special words. Listen, Paul is saying to the Jewish people, you may have privilege, but somehow God would be, God is not partial to them by not judging them. Paul's like, listen, just because you have the word of God, you have that in the Torah, you're, you, you may have privilege, but he's not partial. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, God plays no favorites. 
God plays no favorites just because you received the written word first before these other people down the road and even us today in 2021. You received it first. That doesn't make you extra special where God's going to play favorites and you're in and they're out. Look at Romans 3.9. It goes on and says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul says, all. Repeat that word after me, all. You know how many all are? All. It's pretty simple. All means everyone. All means everybody. All means you don't get to skip out on this. No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks under sin. Whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you speak English, whether you speak Hispanic, whether you speak Chinese or Russian, whether you're big or whether you're little, whether you're blonde hair or dark hair, whether you're Chinese, it doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your personality is, it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, it doesn't matter. All, meaning all, are under sin. In other words, we have a challenge to face. We have a challenge to deal with. Paul says all. Now, what Paul does then, beginning in verse 10, it's like you and I are in a courtroom. You're sitting in a courtroom. If you ever had been in court, you know that's not the greatest experience. You, me, Jews, Gentiles, all humanity, everyone, are taken into the courtroom. Now, thank goodness I haven't had to be in the courtroom on the side where I had to have a lawyer and, and I'm the defendant and I'm being charged of something, but I've been in court either to support somebody else's in court or to testify in court. If you've ever been in court, you know it's not a real comfortable feeling. Even if you're there just to be a supporter, you're like, this is kind of eerie. Even the hallway out in court before you go into court is kind of like, this doesn't feel good, this doesn't feel right, I'm uncomfortable, I'm not really sure about this. Could you imagine being the one sitting in a chair being defended? See, what's happening is Paul is saying, here's the charges, just like a lawyer would do. Here's the charges against all humanity. He's laying out these as an arraignment on humanity, like you are guilty, humanity. Here's what you're guilty of. And the prosecuting attorney is laying out all these accounts. There's actually 13 indictments that we're going to look at. And, it, and Paul's saying, here's what you're guilty of. Here's what you're guilty of. Paul is showing that all mankind is guilty. No one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God and mankind is universally guilty of sin. As we read our text, notice, though, how many times Paul uses the word none or all. You might want to underline it or highlight it as we go through. Paul uses it several times, and Paul uses a series of Old Testament verses as he groups them in a category showing that everyone is guilty. First, he begins with everyone's guilty because of their character. It's, uh, this is separate from what we do. This is about who we are. It's about who we are. Look at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. There it is. None is righteous. No, not one. Nobody is righteous. That word righteous is none is innocent. None is holy. None is without blame. None is without sin. And Paul is anticipating those people who are going to bring up Aunt Mabel. But, Paul, you don't know Aunt Mabel. She is the sweetest soul you'll ever meet, Paul. She bakes pies for every neighbor. If someone's sick, she sends them cookies. She's never said an ill word about somebody. She's the kindest soul. There's no way, Paul. But Paul's like, listen, no, no, no one. None 
is righteous. None is innocent. You are either innocent or you're not. You're either guilty or you're not. There's no middle ground. It's not like we can walk in the gray area. It's either black or it's white. You're either guilty or you're not guilty. And Paul's making the point that mankind is evil. Mankind is sinful. And no one is good enough on their own to cover their own sin. And from this point on, Paul then lays out the indictment in several statements. He says, no one understands. What does that mean? That means no one fully comprehends God. No one fully gets the holiness of God. No one fully understands the righteousness of God or the justice of God or the greatness of God or the love of God. No one fully gets it. Now, we may comprehend parts of it, but Paul's like, no one understands. In other words, he's saying, we are ignorant. We, we, are, we are without knowledge in some certain areas when it comes to things about, about God. They don't know what they don't know. It's kind of like, um, I'm not saying ignorant in a negative term. For, for me, for instance, I'm ignorant when it comes to repairing a car. If I open up the hood of the car, I look down in it and go, yeah, I can put oil right there. And um, that's a belt. It does something. And uh, I can put some fluid in there. I'm not sure which fluid goes in there. And I know how to change a tire and make sure there's gas in it. Beyond that, I'm pretty ignorant. I look at it and go, yeah, it's making a noise. Sounds really weird. What's going on? I have no idea. Take it to the shop. Why do I take it to the shop? Because hopefully they're not ignorant. And then what I do? I pay them for their experience for them being smart and not ignorant about that vehicle. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's like, listen, mankind, we're rather ignorant when it comes to God. Now, we understand a little bit, but really, in comparison to God, and even though we don't understand, God, in his loving kindness, has given us his word to help us understand some very important things, especially those things pertaining to salvation and eternity. But along with that, he provides the Spirit. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. The man, you can say woman, the person without the Spirit, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, if you don't have the Spirit, there's no way to comprehend these things of the Word. You comprehend some of it, but then when you have the Spirit, you comprehend even more of it. And Paul's like, to understand what I'm talking about, you need the Spirit of God. He says in Ephesians 4, they are darkened. It's like your eyes are closed. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Paul's like, some people are not understanding... Some people don't get it. Some people won't grasp it because why? They need the Spirit's help. Secular man or woman, apart from God, cannot understand the things of God. You ever have a conversation with a friend or maybe a coworker, and you're trying to talk to them about God and you're just like, they just totally don't get it. It's just going over their head. They're just ignoring me. Their ears are closed. They're hard-hearted. They want to argue. They want to fight. That's because they don't have the Spirit of God and they're not grasping what you're trying to say. You're trying to speak from a spirit world, and they're living in a secular world, and it's like two totally, it's like oil and water not mixing. That's what's going on. Paul's like, without the Spirit of God, people have a hard time understanding. Goes on in verse 11, says, no one seeks God. Now, Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's going to talk about that in some coming chapters, but seeking him as, as part of a purpose of how to live. No one seeks God. Paul's saying the person who doesn't know God, who has not, who's not chosen God, who has not put their faith in God, they're not seeking him. 
They're not looking to him for their purpose and for their direction. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? That is a big question. What is purpose? And the answer says to worship God and enjoy him forever. Our purpose, worship God, love God, enjoy him forever. Jesus said our purpose is to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. Worship him. Enjoy him forever. That's the greatest commandment, seeking God and loving God. It's our supreme purpose of life. But Paul says, apart from God, apart from having Christ, no one does that. People, people you work with, people you live next to, you, you, you walk up to them and say, are you seeking God? They, they may look at you like a deer in hell, like, what are you talking about? Are, are you living for God? I, I'm not sure. What, what does that mean? And even believers who say, I believe in Christ, struggle to understand, what does it mean to live my purpose, my life for God? He goes on in verse 12 and says, all have turned aside. When you go to an arraignment for somebody that you love, and the prosecuting attorney starts saying, here's their charges, it's a very somber moment. It's... um. It's very solemn, it's very shocking in that moment. You're going, my loved one is being charged with, or my friend is being charged with A, B, C, D, or an E. He's charged against you. Here's the punishment you could face. You could face this punishment, that punishment, that punishment. That's what's going on. Even if the person is innocent and you're like, I'm standing with them because they are my friend. They are my brother. They are my mom, my dad. And I know they did not do what they're being charged with. It's a very somber moment when Someone is pointing a finger at your loved one and saying, here's what you did. Bam, 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 bam. You're like, really? Paul says they turned aside. It's a somber moment. They turned aside. In other, in other words, they've gotten off track. They, they, they don't understand God's purpose. It began in the garden when we went away from it. See, in the garden, Adam and Eve had a great had that great relationship they enjoyed with God. But at some point, they said, now we're going to do it on our own. And they decided to ignore God. They got aside from God. And they didn't just turn aside. What Paul is talking about is someone who turns their back and goes the other direction and says, God, I'm going to do it on my own. In the Greek, it literally means a soldier who turned away and went the opposite direction. Could you imagine? Raise your hands real high in here if you've served in our military at any time in your life. Raise your hand. Military. A few, we have a few in here who have served in the military. Imagine, and I don't know if you've served in battle or not, but imagine being in battle. Imagine you're going in this direction with the enemy over there, and together you're going to go take that, that hill, or you're going to go take that town, and that's our mission, and we're going after it. And one of your, your fellow soldiers says, I'm not doing that. I'm going aside. I'm going to turn around. I'm going the other direction. Forget the purpose. Forget the directive. That's what Paul's talking about. There are some who said, no, I'm going to turn and do it on my own. I'm going to live my own purpose. He wrote, verse 12 continues, together they have become worthless. Worthless. That, that's comparing like a, a spoiled milk. You ever gone in the refrigerator? You, have a, you already pulled your bowl of cereal and you grab the milk and you just open it and you start pouring it and chunks come out? You ever, you ever done that? Am I the only one? You, you all with me? Yeah, we, we've all done that before. You, you, you go and, make, and make, maybe you do the sniff test beforehand. You got the cereal ready, you open the milk, you, whoa, that's really bad. What do you do with that? Right away, you go to the sink and you dump it out, right? You dump it down the drain, you turn the water on, you try to get rid of the smell as quick as you can. You're like, I can't, I can't take that, I can't eat it. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about becoming worthless, ruined, having no purpose. 
Why? Because they're living on their own. They're doing it their own way. They're ignoring God's standard. He continues in verse 12 and says, No one does good, not even one. Now, Paul, again, he's anticipating those who say, But look at my life. But look at this person's life. I mean, they give money to the poor. They help their neighbor. They're good. They never curse. They never do anything bad. Paul. And Paul's saying, No one does good, not even one. In other words, mankind isn't getting any better. Have you noticed that in our society? Have you noticed how sin is growing and growing and it seems like our world is getting more and more full of just evil? Because that's what's taking place and that's what's going to take place until the Lord returns. No one does things for the glory of God. Man apart from God lives for itself. We live in a take care of me, myself, and I type world. And Paul's drawing that out, saying this is what people are doing. Now you may say or you may think, wouldn't you prefer for people to do good instead of evil? Well, yeah. And I think Paul would prefer that and Jesus would prefer that, but that's not the issue here. This is talking about attaching an eternal merit system to our goodness. So if somebody may ask you, are you going to heaven? And they reply, yeah, I think so. I've done some good stuff. You know, look at the things I've done. And someone says, oh, yeah, it seems like you've been a pretty good person. You'll probably be okay with God. That's what Paul's talking about. The fact is, when people do good and thinking that they'll earn their way to salvation, a merit system, that is both a pagan value system and a religion belief system that says, I do these things to get to heaven. And I got to tell you, that's not of God. That's actually a false teaching that has crept its way into the church and also has birthed many pagan or false teachings that we have around us. It's not of God. Some say, this is Paul, though. And Paul is so hard sometimes, and Paul is so strict sometimes. And this is the writing of Paul. As a matter of fact, some people have said they're so tired of Paul because he's so strict in, in how he teaches things that through the years some have said, I'm done with Paul. I'm just going to read the red letters. You may have run into some people like that. I have. Well, I'm just going to read the red letters. You know what the red letters is? That's the words of Jesus that you're going to find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and a little spattering in the book of Acts. They say, I'm just going to read the red letters because I just want to follow Jesus. Okay, well, let's just go to that. Luke 16, 15, this is what Jesus said. You are those who justify. Justify. Look at how I fast. Look at how I tithe. Look at, I go to church. Look at, I help the poor. Look, I teach Sunday school. Look, I lead a growth group. Look, I work in a nursery. I do all this stuff. You justify it before men, but God knows your hearts for what is highly esteemed among them is an abomination in the sight of God. So when we hold people up and go, look at them, they do A, B, C, D, or an E. Boy, they're a really good Christian. Paul or Jesus here is saying it's an abomination. It's worthless. Because man is guilty in regard to their character. Paul moves on to a new group and he says everyone's guilty because of their conversation. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in here is what comes out of here. What's inside the heart comes out of the mouth. So if you're slandering people and you're gossiping about people and you have a, a negative spirit and and you talk negative, and you have cursing coming out of your mouth, what's going on is that's just telling everybody what's happening in here. That means your heart is hurting. That means your heart is not aligned with living out for your Savior. If you have a dirty mouth, you have a dirty heart. And Romans, Paul goes on and says, let me explain this to you. In verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. 
Now, that's not normal terminology that we use in our society, but what they're talking about, what Paul is talking about, is someone that had died, and you have a corpse, but instead of putting that corpse into a container or into a vault or anything, you dig a grave, you put the corpse down in there, but you never close the grave. So when you walk by that grave a few days later, you're like, what's that smell? That really stinks a lot. Or as, the, or as the King James would say, it would say, it stinketh much. Because as you walk by a grave where someone had not been buried, that body as it rots would start, to, would start to stink. And that's the language Paul is saying. That's what's coming out of their mouth stinks like a body that's been put in a grave but never taken care of properly. He goes on and says they use their tongues to deceive. Use their tongue to deceive, to trick. It's kind of like um, someone who's going fishing. What do you do? You get a good pole and you get a good hook and you get some worms or some other kind of lure. You put that on the hook and you throw it out there because you're trying to deceive the fish. Now, I can't tell you that from experience. You ever go fishing with me? I might get stuff like that. You know, that's about it. But you throw that hook out in the water and you're hoping to deceive the fish. Grandma Carolyn Eddy was one of the ladies volunteered in ministry when I was a youth pastor many years ago. And she would go with us to youth camp. And she served just as a grandma, just to love on the kids. That was her only job. She'd go to youth camp. She would, she would just love on kids. She would take them fishing. And Grandma Carolyn would go down with the big fat marshmallows and come back because she caught bass. Grandma Carolyn, what are you doing? How do you do that? She said, Brian, it's just got to know what you're doing. I, I, never, I don't think I've caught a bass bigger than that ever in my entire life. I don't have the patience. I don't know how to bait the hook. But someone who knows what they're doing, they know how to bait the hook. They put it out there. They know how to, what depth to go to. They know how to catch it. I always come back with the hook either empty or, or there's still some food on it. And they nibbled it off all, my, all, all the food. Paul's saying people with that kind of language, they, they use it to deceive people. Kind of like the people who are fishing to deceive them. What, we, what's, a, what's, someone, what's a fisherman doing? He's trying to get his dinner. And the fish thinks, I'm getting my dinner. All along, you're getting your dinner. Paul goes on and says, the venom of asp is under their, lick, under their lips. The snakes, the fangs are hidden. You don't see them until they strike, and then they lock down on your flesh, and then they, then they release the, the venom, which is injected in the poison, and that's how it does its work. Paul says, that's the type of tongue we're talking about here. Paul says, those are, that's the charges against those who are not in Christ. And that's why we're guilty, and that's why we deserve the wrath of God. He goes on in verse 14 and says, The mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, I think you understand probably cursing. We understand foul language. We hear it on movies. We, we see it around. Maybe it's in your home. I, I know when I was a kid, I've shared this story before, cursing wasn't on my challenge through my teenage years and played basketball, and one of my best friends, Paul, and I decided after a week of church camp, we need to stop cussing. And so we would... Um, we made an agreement. Anytime we hear each other cuss, we can punch each other. And we'd be playing basketball, and you'd, you know, maybe get fouled or something, or you'd make a shot and get fouled, and some cursing would come out, and all of a sudden it'd just get hit so hard. What is that for, Paul? You just cussed. And, and, and so you know what that is. You know, you know what cursing is. But Paul is diving in here beyond cursing about this idea of bitterness, and it goes so much more deeper. Think about Job with me for a moment. And all that he went through, losing his family, losing his money, his livelihood, and the list goes on. And his wife looks at Job and says, Job, why don't you curse God and die? Why don't you shake your fist at God and say, God, I've had enough of you. 
Shake your fist at God. God, I don't understand all this. Why are you allowing this going on in my life? God, I said that I love you, and you said you love me, but if you love me, you wouldn't allow this stuff to happen in my life. God, where are you? God, why did you let the divorce happen? God, why did you let the baby die? God, why did you let cancer take over? God, I don't understand all this, and because you let all this happen, God forgets you. That's what Paul's talking about here, that bitterness. And some would say, I can't believe in a God who says he's all-powerful, but let a hurricane happen, let a flood happen, let destruction happen. How can, how can a God like that place a, let, allow a baby to die or for people to suffer or genocide to take place? And they curse God. It is God who is doing this to you, Job, his wife says. So why don't you curse God and die? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In other words, he didn't look at God and say, God, you took my family. God, you took my money. God, you took my farms. God, I don't like you anymore. God, matter of fact, I now don't like you. I, I hate you. But God, matter of fact, if you're a loving God, you're really not loving a lot of this. He didn't do that. There was some wrestling. God, I don't understand. God, I still trust you. God, you're still sovereign. God, you're still in charge. And that's an honest wrestling. But he never shook his fist at God and said, God, if you really love me, you wouldn't allow this. So everyone's guilty because of their character and because of their conversation. And lastly, Paul says, because of their conduct. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's a quote from Isaiah 59. You know, the history of mankind is a very bloody path. I've been reading through the Old Testament lately, and I haven't got quite to all the wars and the battles, but I know they're coming. As you read through the Old Testament, there is much life that was lost in war and battles and blood that was shed. But as you continue through history, that, that idea of blood being shed has continued. For instance, the Holocaust of our time, abortion, there's been millions of babies' lives that have been lost. The dictators over the last hundred years, Joseph Stalin took the lives of over 60 million Russians. Mount St. Ton took the lives of over 70 million Chinese in his reign, during, during his reign. Adolf Hitler killed 20 million, 20 million in World War II, 6 million of those being Jews. The genocide in Rwanda, Darfur, Bosnia, Armenia, Cambodia. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of just bloodshed that has gone through our history and our world. Turn on your television. What sells? Violence. You turn on your television, how many shows are dealing with murder and rapes and um, just violence after violence after violence after violence? Matter of fact, I was preparing this message and kind of I was reading someone describe that uh, where we're at today in our culture and how we like violence and how violence sells. And I went, Hmm, Brian, the show you're watching right now on Netflix is called Shooter. What are you watching? And I started thinking back about other shows I've watched. A lot of them had to do with violence. Now, we like our song shows and some of the goofy stuff that we like to do, but a lot of stuff deals with violence. Some years ago, I asked a, a, a newscast person, I said, I'm so tired of the news comes on and there's a robbery of this and there's a murder of this. And, and I said, why doesn't someone come out with a news station that's like all positive news? I said, it wouldn't sell. It wouldn't sell. We'd go bankrupt. You think about it. Whichever station you watch, whether you're a Fox person or a CNN person or a local news person, 
You watch. What are they putting before our eyes constantly? Violence, 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 and more violence. And now let's put it in our video games. Let's put it all around us. Hence, could it be why we have a society that is just rung full of violence? That's what Paul's talking about. They are, their feet are swift to shed blood. He goes on in verse 16. He says, in their past are ruin and misery. In other words, shattering to bits, breaking people, destroys them. He goes on in verse 17. He says, and in the way of peace they have not known. He's saying mankind without God does not know peace. Mankind has never been very good at peace. Someone once said peace is that time when everyone stops to reload. Think about that in battle. Probably true. Think about that in your home. Sometimes that's true too. There's a lot of arguing and fighting, and we just stop for a little while. Reload our arguments. Reload for the next time when we'll just kind of go after each other again. Why is all of this happening? Why is this going on? Verse 18, Paul says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Why do people live this way? Why are we guilty? Why is mankind guilty? Because there's no fear of God. What What did Paul mean when he says fear of God? It can simply be explained in two different categories. It could be fear like terror, like I'm afraid of God, I have this terror, like like he's going to get me if I don't honor him, if I don't follow him. And then there's a fear which is like an awe and a reverence before the sovereign glorious God. I fear him and I love him because of what he's done. But Paul's saying both of those are missing. Sinners have neither. They don't fear God and think, oh no, what's going to happen to me if I don't give my life to him, if I don't serve him. And they don't fear God in a way of I'm going to honor him and worship him and him be first place in my life. Paul says they have neither. So Paul says in Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts are closed. In Romans 1.21, Paul said they do not honor, they do not honor God as God. And so hence why Paul's laying out this indictment. Listen, this is what's going on with a society of people who don't honor God. Cranfield in his commentary in Romans says this is a figurative way of saying that the fear of God has no part in directing his life. That God is left out of his reckoning, his decision making, his thinking. That he is a practical, whether or not he is a theoretical atheist. Paul says the person who does not fear God, the person who, who does not either have a fear of I'm nervous about what God will do or how God will respond or a reverence and awe of God, they're living a life of an atheist. They're saying there is no God. That's an indictment of who we are as in our culture. Now look what Jesus said. He says, I tell you, I tell you whom to fear, fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. I mean, so you look at the words of Paul or you look at the words of Jesus, again, who do we fear? God. You've you've heard the arraignment. Thirteen accounts. The defendant doesn't speak up against the charges he put forth. Why is that? Because the defendant really has nothing to say. And the verdict is guilty. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. See, if you're a Jewish person, under the law of Torah. If you're a Gentile person, you're under the law written on your heart. And Paul's like, whichever law you want to go by, you can go by the written law, you can go by the law written on your heart, either way you're guilty. Verse 19 goes on, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, even if you've never known the scriptures, 
You never had the written law, but you had the law written on your heart. There's an accountability. And Paul's saying to whatever degree they do the law, whatever way they follow it, whether it's the written law or the one in our heart, whichever way it is, we've broken it. We're, we're guilty. And, and this is where some people start to err. Some people start to think, well, I, I've done most of the laws. I live mostly a good life. I have most of this stuff checked off. Matter of fact, they look at the laws of Scripture, the laws written in our heart, and they just have this checklist. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So I must be okay with God. And Paul says, keeping the law doesn't make you innocent. Look at what Paul says in verse 20. I want, to see, I want you to see it in two different translations. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And the NLT says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how simple we are. What is Paul saying? Love God, love your neighbor. Not stealing, not coveting, not killing, keeping the law. He's saying none of it works. He says, you can have the written code of the law, and you can have it memorized. You can know it backward, and you can know it forward. You can have your list, and you can say, I keep it perfect. You can have it written on your heart and say, I'm doing everything I can to live good. I am choosing a moral life. I'm going to do all that. And Paul says, all of, it misses, all of it misses the mark. Simply put it as this, is the law just shows us how simple we are. We can't check enough boxes to say, God, I've covered it. God, I've got it tackled. And all this leaves us with one big question. How are you going to get to heaven? How am I going to get to heaven? How is your friend going to get to heaven? How is your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your son, your daughter, your aunt, your great aunt, your uncle, your great uncle, your co-workers, your... how are they going to get to heaven? If you and I are sit down and have a conversation, go get a cup of coffee, gather around a campfire, and I were to ask you the question, are you going to heaven? And you were to respond, yes, I'm going to heaven. I say, well, on what basis are you going to heaven? What are you going to say? Brian, I suffered through your sermons for 10 years. No, nope, not going to work. Brian, I was baptized. No, that's not going to work. Not good enough. I try to be a good person. That's not going to work. I give an offering every single week, and I go above and beyond, and I do things like generosity feasts. I was there packing those meals for those kids. Oh, that's nice, but it's not going to work. See, none of that stuff's going to make you innocent. Matter of fact, Isaiah describes our goodness in a pretty vulgar way. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like Filthy rags. Let me explain what filthy rags means briefly. And then mom and dad, you can explain it further with your kids. That is not the box of rags I have in my garage that I pull out every night to wipe up a little mess or a little spilt oil. The filthy rags he's referring to is the rag that a lady would use for a menstrual cycle. And after the rag was used for a menstrual cycle and then it is thrown out, Paul's comparing our good works to that. He's saying, your good works are like that rag that was just thrown in that trash can that your wife used or your daughter used or for their menstrual cycle. He's saying, that's what your good works are like. I know it's vulgar. I know it's a visual that maybe you go, I didn't really need to see that or think about that. But I want us to look at our works, and I don't care. Yeah, I signed up to serve in that ministry. I did the growth group thing. I was at church on Sundays. I was good to people. I paid for this person's that. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. You know the problem there is? I. 
And that's what Paul's getting to, is we live a life of I, me, myself, and I. And Paul says, it's not I, it's about what he's done. And it's about us putting our faith in him. Let, let me wrap up. Three chapters and seven weeks about the wrath of God with four quick statements that I think brings it all together. And you're going to get done and you say, why don't you just say that in the first place? We could have just moved on to chapter four. All are guilty. I don't care your age, your race, your standard of life, how much you know, you don't know. All are guilty. The law cannot make you innocent before God, no matter how hard you try. You can try to keep it. It's not going to work. God is just. And because God is just, he must and he will punish sinners. Here's the good news we're going to start moving into, though. Jesus took our place. He took the punishment of sin on the cross, as we have the cross right back here in our worship center, so that if you put your faith in him, your sins will be forgiven. Your place, your home, your eternity home will be in heaven. And that can be done today. That can be done right now today. That is our mission to help other people discover that you put your faith in Jesus and all of our sin is taken care of. Does that not mean that we don't try to do some good things? Yeah, we still try to do some good things. Does that not mean that we should worship and we should serve and, and we should care and we should give? Yeah, we should still do those things, but that's about relationship. It's not about meritship where I'm doing them to earn my way to salvation. 